Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the champagne of podcasts. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to food stylist Roscoe Betzel. Uh, he's a local up here. We met on Instagram through a shared love for f- foraging for mushrooms. And as someone who does not have a long history of loving styled photo shoots, I was really impressed with his work because it's super naturalistic uh, and approachable looking. It doesn't look fake or contrived in any way. And like Jennifer May, my first guest, it has a real human quality and I wanted to talk to him about it. Any of you who read my blog over the years know that I'm kind of allergic to advertising and always strive to make my own photography and imagery look as unlike commercial art as possible. So I was excited to talk to him about uh, threading that needle between the necessities of having a job and the creative desire to express oneself and to hew to a particular look and feel for what is ultimately a staged culinary event or or plated food. We had a good talk. Um, As is mostly the case, we kept talking after I turned the mics off because in general these are really fun conversations, I think, for both parties. And he sort of asked me, because he didn't quite know what to expect coming in, what I thought that this was about. And um, I've been learning as I go, but if I had to break it down, which I tried to do for him, I think it's about my interest in how creative individuals have managed to create their own careers in a business that has a lot of commercial pressure and a lot of competition. And as somebody who used to be a fine artist and still thinks like one, I am really interested in how talent finds a way to function successfully on its own terms in a very busy business context. So there you go. And here's me and Roscoe Betzel talking at my dining room table on a sunny winter day. Enjoy. or something I took a bunch of um, old slate shingles that mm-hmm. I found in Vermont and I just put little felt feet on them and they make that's incredible perfect. placemats yes, they're just beautiful they, they each have two little holes yeah. for the nails but they're just beautiful <laughs> yeah and and uh, I love using things you know in a sort of I don't know slightly whatever unorthodox way it, or exactly. maybe a shape yeah. that people aren't accustomed to yeah. or something like that I it, it brings interest yeah yeah, and that's um, and and so you know the aesthetics of food, which is obviously I think what we're going to cover. Um, it, it's to me, you know, there's a sort of intellectual exercise. There's you know the eating first with your eyes. There's the right. sort of the the beauty factor, the curiosity, the some sort of you know way into the food. And I mean, obviously, you know, just a plate of pasta is a plate of pasta. But there are ways to me that presentation can really beyond bringing pleasure to the people that I'm feeding. To me, I really like cooking to a specific vessel sometimes. Ah, okay. And so I made a lot of these. No, that that makes perfect sense. To give me a destination for a dish. So I know kind of like it needs to meet certain criteria visually or size-wise. Right. I I rarely do that, but I understand exactly what you mean because I've I've been guilty. I found one particular piece Mm -hmm. that I want to use, and yeah, I'm not just going to slap a muffin on it. I want to do something that really 
yeah. brings out the the character of that yeah. that piece. And I've, I have done that, uh-huh. I, not even consciously, but now that you've mentioned it, I yeah, I like I like um, I like inspiration, and I like having a reason to sort of pick my game up and do something a little more than just regular dinner if I have the time and the inclination. Exactly, time and inclination is key. Yeah, yeah, and life doesn't always afford those. No. But, um, so. All right, so you're from the Midwest, right? I'm from Ohio. Ohio, yeah. right. And um, you, you grew up there, went to school, did I all that? I grew up there. I actually sort of got out as soon as I could. I went did to, you? I, I went to Chicago to go to oh, school. Okay. Went to Northwestern. Oh, cool. Um, that My wife is from Evanston. That's where we ah, met, actually. Wow. Yeah, she grew nice up city. Just, like blocks from the campus, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and um, that, was, that was really life-changing for me. Northwestern up, was. Yeah, up, up until that point, I had lived my entire life in Ohio. And uh-huh. it was, Which town? Uh, in Columbus, Columbus, in the capital. Okay. And not to say that I was deprived in any way. It was, uh, it was a pretty metropolitan city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state capital was there. The university was there. So we had great entertainment, uh, arts. But uh, getting out of Ohio and seeing what the world had to offer in Chicago just sort of really opened me up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you, um, did you major in anything, study anything that pertains to what you're doing now? Or? Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch, but <laughs> I started out, uh, well, I actually applied to Northwestern uh, to become an industrial engineer oh, wow. because my aptitude tests and my father suggested that would be a good route for me to take. Yeah. And it was after the first year of courses and uh, meeting like-minded friends who were in the arts mm-hmm. that I realized that's really where I wanted to be, uh, in the arts with some grounding that would uh, provide me a, a way to make a living. Well, yeah, because there's usually a big income disparity between visual <laughs> yes. artists and engineers. Engineering yes. is one of the right. better career choices <laughs> right. these days, especially. Uh, so I actually I moved into to journalism oh, okay. as my major. Really? Uh, and Which allowed me to continue to take uh, electives in the arts. And I, I ended up uh, graduating from the communication school, radio, TV, and film. Huh. And were you ever uh, in front of the camera, uh, or you know, were you ever as, sort of... as a, as a as a student? Yes, but professionally, no. I did end up uh, becoming a radio announcer. Oh, okay. And going back to Columbus, Ohio. Oh wow. Uh, what kind of radio? Progressive rock. Huh. Obviously, this goes back a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and was that was that just sort of a job, or were you? It was. Did you, were you interested uh, in that particular genre? I of music? was interested. I was actually more interested in film uh-huh. when I was in the communication school. I made lots of. One, what I considered wonderful student films, mm-hmm. but um, being able to to play music and to curate the music that I played, the mm-hmm. program that I played, was uh, was very interesting to me for a while. I did that for about three years, and uh, then even though that was back in the seventies, the computer age came in, and uh, we were given computerized playlists. Mm. Wow, and that early! It was at that point. Well. Columbus Trend Center. Right. <laughs> uh, it was at that point that I stepped out and thought, no, I really don't want it. Well, because you almost don't need a DJ at you that don't, point. You, you don't. Yeah. And and that was the beauty of the job for me. It wasn't announcing what people had just heard. It was talking about the music and why I selected it. And well, like you said, being a curator. Yes. Not just a not just a right. back announcer. Right. So all right. So post DJing, you. Went back to journalism? I went, I went back to, uh, yes, I, I made an attempt to get back into journalism. I, at that point, I realized there was basically nothing left for me in, in Columbus, and I moved to New York and thought, 
Okay, this is it. You're going to find uh, a job as a production assistant or somehow get involved with film, which mm -hmm. was my, my focus. Yeah. Um, I was promised a job as a production assistant with a documentary filmmaker in Harlem, mm -hmm. which gave me the confidence to make the move to New York. Mm -hmm. His project fell through. I ended up taking uh, a number of jobs in restaurants because it was easy work to find. I, mm -hmm. I wanted to cook, but I had no experience, so I ended up waiting on tables. And yeah. uh, more often than not, uh, being an African-American, I was hired to wait on tables mm -hmm. and ended up being a busboy. Yeah. So that didn't last long. Wow. So they, they actually like bait <laughs> they and switched actually, you even with the job? A number of times. Wow. Yeah. That's shitty. Yeah. That's really, really shitty. Um, and but. so you so you wanted like you wanted to cook. So I'm curious. I just want to sort of jump back and like in terms of uh, your culinary development. Mm -hmm. um, were, you, were you already sort of curious and interested I was in good. food? Growing and, up, I was uh, always either in my mom's kitchen, my grandmother's kitchen, my whoever's cooking. And um, I was chastised, why are you around the women? Because the women are making the food. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, I loved cooking and, and watching and learning. And yeah. uh, particularly my grandmother was great at uh, making masterpieces out of very little. Mm -hmm. And I, I just found that fascinating. She'd have a bag of ingredients from a grocery and an hour later there was this beautiful spread on the table. And did, I, did she come from any particular tradition she geographically? She was uh, or? Southern American. Southern, okay. Because yeah. I was going to say yeah. that's, a, that's a characteristic. Right. You know, yeah. of, of some of, to me, the most interesting cuisine now, and obviously I'm in a position where, you know, uh, I don't have any of the exigencies that force me to innovate with right. very few ingredients, <laughs> right? I, I, I descend which is from a, Which is a nice place to be. It is a very nice place to be. I do descend from people who were that poor, mm -hmm. you know, 80, 100 years ago, but um, I am luckily not. But um, I think some of the great cuisines of the world are the ones that make the most out of very little. I, I, I think, think it forces you to really pay attention and know what you're doing. It really does. And, and, uh, and she was focused. She was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, leave, it wasn't ever leave me alone, I'm busy. But she was clearly very focused on what she was doing and yeah. very patient with me to explain why. Uh, and that sort of got my interest up with, mm -hmm. with cooking and it was something that uh, being a man growing up in Ohio in, in the 60s the idea of uh, especially I think being an African-American man there was no way I could enter the, the kitchen as a as a viable profession okay it was seen as service and what we were <laughs> the reason my parents were sending me to college and, mm -hmm. uh, it was not so you could be a waiter not or so a cook. I could be a reader or a cook right right well that makes sense yeah so I, uh, I pursued my education, uh, I, and back to New York, I knew that I wanted to try my hand at something involving food, but not in the capacity that I was hired initially. Right, right. Uh, I ended up getting a job with CBS as a film archivist, mm -hmm. which was a great job. Yeah, I bet. And um, it was during that time that I sort of pursued cooking a little more seriously. I took a number of courses in Manhattan. In, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And there were just, there were lots of courses. There were, were there, was the French Culinary Institute um, happening then? I don't think the French Culinary Institute was happening. It may have been, uh, it, it wasn't something that I was aware of, mm -hmm. but there were a number of people offering courses. And, and I took a few. I mean, they were, they were basically 
one day or three day courses, um, learn to make a French meal, including mm -hmm. the appetizer, the main course, and the dessert. And you sat around with a group of five or six people, and at the end of the evening, you had the meal. Right. And I probably did four or five of those and realized that at some point I wanted to really take a, a cooking course. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents offered me as a, as a present a, a two-week course at La Varenne, mm. which kind of changed my life. Yeah. I, I, I went there and then went back to my job at CBS and it just wasn't the same. Mm. And so you're but, what, about 25 now? I was, yes, right. Yeah, late 20s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up taking a leave of absence and going to Lavarin and spending a year there. A whole year? Taking their course. Wow. They got their grad diploma, mm -hmm. <laughs> which that's is great. not too shabby after a year. No, that's great. <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was a very intense year. I, uh, I applied to the school. Well, actually, during this two-week course that I took, I spoke with the administrator and found out that there was what they called a stagiaire program, whereby yeah. I could assist the chefs, translate, assuming my French was up to par, mm -hmm. and uh, that my tuition would be covered. Wow. That's great. So I went back to New York, enrolled in the Alliance Francaise, mm -hmm. got my French up to, to speed to be yeah. able to translate lessons. Sure. And uh, then went back, uh, took my year's leave of absence, and I basically spent all of that time either at the school, working with the chefs, uh, I found uh, I was really fortunate in that, as far as accommodations, I was able to live with a U.S. embassy family who hmm. needed someone. Well, they had uh, servants' quarters, chambre de bain, and they had, I guess, engaged someone from the school previously and had put an ad up. If you'd like to cook a dinner party for us once a week, we'll hmm. give you a place to live. And I thought, yes. That's fantastic. That was fantastic. And it gives you a chance to use what you're learning in school exactly. in a real, yeah. they presumably got, nice kitchen. They got a good deal. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> As did I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was great. a win-win. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I had a couple of sort of analogous situations in Europe and around the same age. Yeah. It's allowed me to live there for right. you know, without a real job. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's pretty nice. So when you, when you enrolled and went over there, and that's a big commitment, um, were you planning on then like ending up as a professional chef, or did you just want to be really well versed in the I, in the techniques? I the... wanted to be well versed in the techniques. Uh, I didn't really want to be a chef. I had actually discovered uh, prior to going to to cooking school that there was something called a food stylist. And I thought, mm. That's really something I would love to do. So, so what no year idea. are we talking now? Uh, we're talking uh, late seventies. Late seventies. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So they're, they're all, I mean, I imagine it was mostly print, right? Magazines? It was mostly print magazines. And the article that I read uh, was about a woman who did uh, magazine work. Mm -hmm. And she emphasized the fact that a lot of what she did wasn't really food. Mm. And my question was, why not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so is this when they're using like Crisco for ice yes, cream? So because exactly. it doesn't melt? Exactly. Okay. And that was sort of the gist of the article. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, you know, if you're making food and it's being photographed, why not make real food? Yeah. I think that would be a lot more appealing. And I, I looked at the images that were along in this article, and they didn't look appealing to me. They looked too perfect. They didn't look real. So that was in the back of my mind when I went to cooking school. As, as a possible career. As a possible career. Mm -hmm. 
But I thought I wanted to do something with food that would not... Uh, I didn't really want to work in a restaurant. Right. I had I had, had my fill of that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard gig yeah. at any level. At any level. So I, I ended up making... Uh, making pretty good friends with a couple of the chefs and they just thought my idea of becoming a food stylist was ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> the idea of learning how to cook French food and not having someone eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, so at this time you're kind of right on the cusp of kind of Nouvelle Cuisine, really yes. really taking the Escoffier I, thing and overturning it that's for it. lighter, more vegetable-based. That was exactly the, the time that kind of I a was pivotal there. time to be yeah. there. Yeah. And this introductory course that I that I took, the two week course that I took that my parents gave me as a present, was specifically a Nouvelle cuisine course. Hmm. Mom, Dad, I'm really interested in this Nouvelle cuisine thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was like me in molecular gastronomy in like 2002 or whatever. Yeah. That was. I read that New York Times magazine article about yes. El Bulli and just exactly freaked yeah. out. I yeah, I, I did the same. Um, that was that was quite an experience going to El Bulli. Oh really? That's not one I can say yeah. I had. I went yeah. to Alinea, but that's as close ah, as I well, got. I didn't get to Alinea, which yeah. <laughs> I probably should have. Yeah. The all right. So then you did your year, and um, was that? I mean, did you travel in Europe? I did France travel in Europe. I did. You bounced around mostly and... in France, but I also went to to Italy and Switzerland. I mean, it was. Uh, Cheap train ride sure. away, and yeah. I was right. Everything's there. So, so close together; it still blows my mind. If I had, if I had three days off, I I went somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that at that point, your your all your senses were very attuned. So anytime you ate anything, you were sort of yes. trying to reverse engineer it in your mind to figure out how it got together. Precisely. Did you have any particular epiphanies with a dish or a something that really uh, just lodged in your head forever? You know, not really. Uh, everything was. There was so much coming at me, yeah. and I, I just tried to take in as much as I possibly could. There were a couple of experiences that were uh, a little challenging when when we cooked a number of items. A eel, for example, we got live. The rabbits we got at the school, we had to skin. Wow. So that was a little <laughs> different from Yeah. That. Yeah, I think it's good, though, to connect. Oh, it was fantastic. I think it's important. Yeah. If you eat meat, I think it's important to kill at least one animal right. in your life. Right. I really do. Yeah. Um, and well, I've got that. I've got that notch on my knife. Yes, that's good. And all right, so you so you bounced around and you just kind of accumulated what must have been an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience. And then when your year was up, you came straight back. Or I did came you, straight back, and uh, I actually because you had was, t- uh, taken a one year leave. I had taken a one year leave. So you had a job right. waiting. I had a job waiting. And uh, ironically, I went back to that job, and I realized after uh, about a month that I needed to do something with mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. And I applied uh, to work in a restaurant, line cook, hmm. and got the job. My parents were furious. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people were fairly incredulous. I uh, sort of gave up my career to be a line cook. Yeah. But um, it was something that I, at that time I felt I really needed to do. It was an experience I needed to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a little bit of work as basically volunteer in French kitchens just mm-hmm. to see what that was like. Yeah. Was it so this was, was not a French restaurant where you worked uh, as a line cook? It was not. Okay. It was an American it was a new American restaurant. Okay. Early eighties. Right. Okay. So it was just the beginning of that sort of um well like the quilted giraffe kind of yes, like eighties right. kind of 
caviar and lots of you know mustard ice cream right yeah all the everyone just kind of losing their mind you know the cocaine years right (laughs) the cocaine years (laughs) which was uh yes they certainly were i worked at a number of crazy places with crazy people i I talked to a chef from kingston who worked in miami where it's still the cocaine years and he said that the one thing you never hear is complaints about portion size because nobody actually eats anything eats right (laughs) um well yeah so manhattan in, in the early 80s must have been that must have been a trip it was really a trip yeah and um, did you? How long did you make it as a line cook? Uh, I made it as a line cook probably, well, not very long. Um, at that particular restaurant, probably two months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like it. Yeah, I didn't like it at all. I ended up doing a fair amount of catering work at mm-hmm. the time, freelance on my own. On the um, cooking side or the serving side? On the side? cooking on side. On the cooking side. So you, yeah. you'd been promoted. yeah from this from this point on. Now I was you have the qualifications. The side. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, and I ended up getting jobs with uh, a number of large catering concerns. Mm-hmm. They'd call me up on a freelance basis if they had a, an event. So I did a number of um, large events as far as, uh, not so much as a line cook, but I had made it clear to them that I wanted to do, uh, that I wanted to have some input as far as the menu, what mm-hmm. I was cooking. So they hired me to work on events where there were lots of chefs, or they hired me to do small, intimate dinner parties, which was something that I loved. Yeah. yeah. I, I could come up with the, the menu. Um, they would give me one or two assistants, depending on how large the party was and how involved the menu was, uh, someone to serve, and it was sort of my show. Hmm. And I really like that. Yeah, well, creative control (laughs) and and a group that's not too big to overwhelm you. Right. So you can actually really manage the dishes. Pretty much unlimited uh, supplies, uh, very few restrictions as far as uh, ingredients. Yeah. With the exception of what the client wanted. Right. Right, but it was but the, the budgets. I assume the were budgets were generous, very generous. Yeah, that's great. And so, sort of 10, 15, 20 people kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of yeah. ideal. Even, even actually, even smaller, eight to twelve. Wow. More likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. That was great. That's perfect. Yeah. It's if in these days when I when I cook for money, it's not that often, but that's exactly what I like to do because yeah. you really can. Everything can be handmade. You can do it in your civilian kitchen or your, you know, your employer's civilian right. kitchen without completely losing your mind without and trashing com- the place. Exactly. Right. You know? and, and <laughs> Especially some, if you've got a helper. It's, it's true. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I, again, I kind of, if possible, make that a requirement that there's a dishwasher or somebody else there because I, otherwise you just get totally right. in the weeds. And, and you can't, there's no workspace. There's right? no workspace, right. You've got to keep it clean. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, so I, I did that. So I did. I did that yeah. probably uh, off and on for a couple of years. Um, and and because a lot of times people who work in catering, a lot of times they're actors, so that leaves them free to have auditions right. or take gigs or whatever. Um, were you doing something else, sort of? In uh, your... I was pursuing a food styling career. Okay, you were. I was looking for people to assist, which wasn't very easy to find. Right, right. Uh, I I sort of put together a portfolio mm-hmm. of my own. Uh, and eventually, uh, I ended up getting a few clients of my own as a result of this. And um, one of my clients was a hospital. Mm-hmm. It was the New York Hospital for Joint Diseases. Uh, I did a number of parties for them. Okay. And at one point, they needed a chef to run their hospital operations, and I took the job. Wow. And that was uh, very fortuitous. 
horrible job. Yeah, institutional <laughs> cooking, right? It I was mean, not generous budgets. I thought what well, not generous budgets and not flexible budgets. I yeah. found out. I thought I'm the chef. I decide what <laughs> what we're going to serve. <laughs> It's like they back the Cisco truck up, and that's what you get. Basically, that was it. And uh, I, I can still hear Florida, who was the head salad woman, saying, "No, chef, we're not going to make yellow Jello. We make green Jello." Wow. <laughs> that's a level of inflexibility that even I would not have predicted. <laughs> So, uh, and, the, and the good thing about that was that that was my uh, my last job, uh, <laughs> my last uh, full time job for somebody else. For somebody else, because yeah. I I just couldn't. And I did I did do that. I gave it a I gave it my best for probably a year, and it just wasn't working out, and it was getting worse. Yeah. And so when you say you were building up a portfolio, were just were you photographing dishes in your own kitchen? Just uh, to... I was photographing dishes. I had a few friends who were. Pretty good photographers. I had mm-hmm. them photograph dishes that I made specifically to get an image. And of course, we ate afterwards. But right, right, yeah. right, right. And and this was back in the good old days of actual film and actual film. actual like printing photos and putting yeah. them in a binder. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I used the, to be a painter, and I actually I shot so many thousands of slides, and it was the, so expensive. It's it so was time very consuming. expensive just and time consuming. Unbelievable. It's now it's true. You just yeah. tap a thing, and somebody's got your whole you know resume yeah. and all your whole portfolio. Right. Now it's remarkable. Yeah, I've, I've got a whole filing cabinet full of images that I, I hesitate to get rid of just because they cost so much. Yeah, I feel the same way. I still have all my slides. It's not yeah. like they'll ever get projected. Right. You know? they're, they're still super quality. I mean, the thing about film, though, right. is it really no, is different. No, it, it really is amazing, the quality. I don't miss the darkroom, though. Do you? I don't know if you were ever on the I, camera I was side. in the darkroom. Yeah. And, I don't uh, really miss that. No. Yeah, I that, love the minute you said that word, I, I smelled it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's powerful. It's, not, yeah. it's powerful. I mean, I love retouching digitally. In fact, right. I love most of the things about digital photography, but there is a certain, I guess it's, you know, what people who are really into vinyl say. It's the same. Right. Know, there's a warmth and subtlety there's to it. There's a warmth it, and that, subtlety. That even now, like now when the pixels are just so gigantic that, I mean, the pixel, the number of pixels rather, um, you start to get into a, a, a little bit more of a softness, but there's still kind of a harsh digital quality that sometimes I find I have to remove, you know, you have to blur things a little. Especially because, if you're looking at a large image. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they're too perfect, and yeah. you want to muddy it up a little. I find. Um, and so, all right. So, what was the, what was the gig that allowed you to quit the the, the last um, real day job? It wasn't. It wasn't so much a gig as just realizing that it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm done with this, and I ended up uh, taking a job with a restaurant consultant mm-hmm. as her his assistant. Okay, it wasn't a great job, but he was a good guy. Mm-hmm and knew exactly what I wanted to do. He said, I work occasionally with food stylists and eventually someone's going to need an assistant and I'll refer you. And I said, that would be great. Thank you. So I took the job and within a couple of weeks, he was working on a project and needed a food stylist and hired someone who in fact didn't need an assistant and took me on. And we became uh, a pair for uh, probably about a year. Right. And uh, she got pregnant and referred me to a couple of her clients. And uh, that was the beginning of my food styling career. Oh. And those clients were magazine those editors? Those were magazine editors, precisely. Magazine photo editors. Uh-huh. And so then they would assign you to a photographer for a particular campaign exactly. or an editorial, exactly. some, something. Right. We're doing a story on 
salads with edible flowers. Right. Okay. That's my so first now we're editorial sort of, assignment. Was it really? That's a good one. <laughs> and it was a great one. Yeah. Lots of nasturtiums and pretty yeah. things like that. And so this, we're now like into the kind of middle eighties. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Toward the toward, yeah middle toward the end of the eighties. And so um, there was a lot. I mean, print was still obviously it was kind of king. Um, Absolutely. The, the, the new media doesn't exist, and so right. that was presumably. Um, I mean, I'm guessing, but I imagine the budgets were pretty good. and The budgets were decent. Well, for me, they were great because yeah. I had nothing to compare them sure. with. And they yeah. were certainly a lot better than uh, being an assistant to a restaurant. Yeah. And did you find yourself um, working, obviously you, you began with these particular editors, but did you then become... I don't know, well-known and, and working um, in a lot of places, or were you I, mostly I working for one um, or two places? The fir- the, well, I was extremely fortunate in that the first job I worked on, um, it was for Self Magazine, and I worked with R- Maria Robledo, who mm-hmm. I hadn't heard of prior to that. It turns out that she really changed the look of food photography. She mm-hmm. was one of the first people to do all natural light, which meant that we'd go in the studio and she'd have determined what the best time of day would be to shoot. Yeah. Please have everything ready by 11. The light will be here. We'll right. shoot it. It'll be beautiful and we'll be done. Yeah. And that actually happened. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> again and again. It makes mm-hmm. a big difference. I, I spent a huge years difference. learning yeah. how to use a flash in such a way that it didn't look like a flash. Right. Because it drives me nuts. And yeah. you still see it all the time. You see it's it all the time. Blown out. Right. Looks like a nuclear explosion <laughs> is happening in the next room. I mean, it's right. it's a horrible look. Edges are too hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember, I was at art school in the 80s. Um, and I remember... A cookbook that I that my grandmother had, somebody gave to her, probably around the time that we're talking about, and it was you know dusty rose, mauve, and teal, like yes. as far as the eye could see, yes. and everything was styled to within an inch of its life. And so I'm really interested to hear you talk about this particular photographer and and using natural light and, and because the the work of yours that I've seen online, the thing I like about it so much and why I wanted to talk to you is because it, that it doesn't really look styled. You know, it looks like food that might be on your table that you would right. be about to eat. And so you have a way into it. It's not this very weirdly cold, aspirational kind of styling. Does that make sense? That Where makes it's perfect sense. A life that actually that's, is not yours and that, might not even be a real been life. That's my goal since I started. Yeah. yeah. So you clearly yeah. had a very strong, intuitive I, sense of what you liked. I think that's true. Yeah. And what felt I also right faced a fair amount of opposition. Yeah. Well, so that's what I'm curious to hear about. Um, so let's, yeah. I mean, was this, um, so you met this photographer who was using natural light, which I assume made everything look a hell of a lot right. nicer. And who also encouraged me to, to make things that looked real and approachable. Mm-hmm. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the light. It was the props. It was uh, the way food was handled, mm-hmm. not arranged so precisely that it looked like it was done by a machine. Right, right. Did the crew at that time, because I know now sometimes for a big shoot, there can also be a prop stylist and right. there can also be a number of other, you know, now there's a digital tech on, and there's, there, can be a lot of, right. there can be a lot of people on a set right. now. Uh, back then was there a were, There more, were far fewer there people were. on a set. There was generally uh, a prop stylist mm-hmm. and depending on what was required, either the prop stylist was there and sort of worked as, uh, as part of the team to put together each photograph. Uh, in some cases, the prop stylist would just leave props and the art director and the photographer would go through them and be like this, this, and this. 
and the prop stylist would not even be on set. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a it was a, just a, a an archive of glasses and plates, and, right? And then you'd sort of choose, or they would choose the look, and then you would take that and right. And there would there would usually be in in terms of the prop stylist's uh, input, there would usually be a meeting with with an art director mm-hmm. and the photographer prior, so that please no move, for example, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> No, yeah, I remember, man. Yeah. That 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 there's something about that combination, that mauve and teal combination, yeah, that kind of scarred me for life. Yeah, no, it's, it's all those horrible Philip Johnson buildings with the mauve right. with the mauve granite on the outside. They're still there. I know, I know. <laughs> Downtown Boston is just this. Uh. Um, and so, so as you were, I presume that over time you maybe got to exert a little more of your own. Yes. Desire stylistically yeah. and right. take fewer orders and maybe give a few more. Right. And was that... Well, um, it, there, that, was, that was part of it. The other thing is that uh, I think there was just a general trend toward more natural looking. There was. Which is, so, which is why I, I, I think that's why my career took off. Mm-hmm. Because right I, place, right time yeah, with them. Right and you had that aesthetic. That's what you were always looking right. for. Um, so you got less pushback because people were... Or moving in that direction, uh, because people were moving in that direction, and I also, I think, tended to get calls from people who were looking for what I was doing. Because mm-hmm. I remember I have one of, I think, one of the very first sort of cookbooks I ever got, which I am not ashamed to say I swiped from an employer during my very brief gig as a private chef right after grad school, um, and it was uh, Jean Georges's first cookbook. Beautiful book. From, from about 1990. <laughs> right. And, but it's really interesting because shortly after that, I was in Chicago then, and I, I picked up um, one of Charlie Trotter's books. And just the difference between those two was really kind of remarkable. Because the Jean Georges book was from a few years earlier. It was probably around 90, maybe 92. I think that was around 90. Yeah. yeah. And then the Charlie Trotter books, I was there, well, I did the cooking gig in 96. So... The Charlie Trotter book was from more around that time. I forget which one it was. I think it might have been, it was either vegetables or, or seafood, I forget, because right. he did a bunch. And just the difference in the aesthetics between those two. The Jean-Georges book was still very much like these whole tabletops that had been styled with mounds of food, and then there would be the finished plate, but surrounded by the things that went into right. the plate, right? Like there's a whole fish on the table, you know, like a Dutch still life, <laughs> except the lighting's completely different. Right. But there's, you know, this, this is like a whole fish, and then there's a plate with a fish dish right. in front of that, you know? Right. And there's also a ton of, you know, fruit and artichokes and God knows what else, like just pouring off this table. And then you get to Charlie Trotter, and he's got these, like, you know, these just super austere, those, the, this architectural, totally centralized, you know, cylindrical thing with a moat of sauce and then a garnish around that, all these concentric and that's circles. it, and that's all you need. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But it was, it was really just, even back then when I was, I barely knew what I was doing. Well, I, I, I think that really, that's in a nutshell, is, is what happened at that period. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was a desire, if you're going to go to the trouble to hire a crew and take a photograph, Give them something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it must have gotten a lot more fun then. It got a lot more fun. Yeah. And so the, the, what were the kind of, was a lot of this for, a lot of this was editorial, but some of it, I presume, was, was commercials, was advertising. Some of it was. Yes. Uh, but you preferred the editorial? I preferred the editorial just because it was, uh, it gave me a lot more mm-hmm. freedom yeah. and creativity. Sure, right. And you're also, you know, you're, because those images are meant to be instructive. So you're right. teaching people how to cook something, right. right? If it's for gourmet or bon appetit or whatever. There's nice. a recipe and this is what it right. should or could look like. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So what were the, what were the big, um, 
what were the kind of trends for because that was right around the moment that this country started to take food more seriously, seriously. yes um, and we, we sort of started to grow up I mean there were a lot of silly excesses like quilted giraffe and Wolfgang Puck and the, right. you know I mean the, obviously those guys could cook but there was a very particular sort of Hollywood or, or just rich people panache that, that was kind of bolted onto that because it was very aspirational and image oriented and I'm curious what magazines were trying to teach Americans to cook back then like what, what, what you were seeing in terms of the evolution of of, of that kind of uh, content, I think what magazines were trying to do was well, there were two. There were sort of two different schools. Um, some of the magazines were trying to help people to achieve uh, a home cook's version of restaurant food. Mm-hmm. I think that was very common at that period. There were also some magazines that tried to buck that trend. Mm-hmm and to make things perfectly easily accessible. And these tended to be sort of low-end magazines. Yeah. (laughs) I think the more aspirational uh, magazines tended to strive to show you what you could do at home that's similar to what is done at a restaurant. Right, 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 right. Impress impress people. Well, yeah, impress your guests, and you presumably have a really nice kitchen, and you have have some beautiful stemware and things, so you can actually, you have a shot at this. I don't think it's any secret that the aspirational model is the business model that sells magazines. It's the one that does, right. <laughs> However, there were, at, and at the time, I had, uh, I had clients who ran the gamut. I had a number of clients who, uh, magazines, who were the kind of magazines that you'd pick up for 99 cents at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And they'd, they'd uh, want to show you what you could do for for your family for 99 cents. Right. And that was uh, somewhat challenging because I was usually, for those for those jobs, I wasn't really given a budget in terms of what I needed to spend for the shoot, mm-hmm. but I was given strict <laughs> direction to not exceed a certain amount on a plate mm-hmm. that we shot. Okay. That's two dollars worth of food. It's got to, it's got to be a dollar twenty-five. Wow! <laughs> take take off those green beans. And it it was it was a good lesson for me, mm-hmm. a really good lesson for me because uh, you know this is how a lot of people eat, and this is how I can help them to be able to eat a really well balanced, well prepared meal. Right, but within Given a bu- budget. Within a budget, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, obviously the landscape is completely different now, but I think a lot of people are still on a certain level afraid of their kitchens. I think that's very true. It's, it's a shame. It's very true, though. There are people I know who... <laughs> I do, too. And, 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 you know, educated, worldly people who've right. eaten all around the world and, and uh, come from all kinds of interesting cultural backgrounds, and they're just... They're just and they don't realize their, their capabilities. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, in some ways... I was talking to uh, somebody recently who's who's close with with Rachel Ray, and I don't know Rachel Ray, and I'm not really the target demographic for her TV show, but she's probably done more than just about anyone else working today to introduce regular Americans to cooking with ingredients. This is true. A decent I, ingredient. No, I have to give her that from yeah. scratch. I, I have actually worked for her magazine, and she's uh, she's adamant about that. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, you know, if she got a whole generation of Americans to buy real olive oil and to actually chop vegetables and put them in a pot yeah. together, that's just More such a huge step forward it for is. so many people. 
Um, I think one of the downsides to the amount of food TV and the amount of, and of course so much of it is about these ridiculous competitions, right? Right. I think that 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 people, there's so much stunt cooking that I think regular people, like they sort of feel somehow their their eyes on them when they're in their kitchen or their their family's (laughs) going to judge them or they're going to judge themselves if they're not, you know, crushing it every night. I don't that's, know. That's a problem I have. Is it? <laughs> really? Even with all your skill and training and everything? Well, when I, when I invite people to dinner, I know their expectations are mm-hmm. going to be... Because you work elevated. in the business. Right. And, and sometimes I, uh, I take that to heart and try to do something that they probably have never seen or had before. Mm-hmm. And at other times, I go the opposite route and just do something that's very basic, something mm-hmm. that I would make for myself yeah. if no one were coming. Right. And... Often, that's what's most appreciated. <laughs> I, I find that, too. Back in the... Back, back in sort of the peak of, of, of blogging, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 was kind of the magic sweet spot for me in terms of traffic and the comments I was getting and the, and the gigs that I got that came directly out of blogging. Right. Um, oh, man, I would throw down the most obscenely labor-intensive dinner parties. I mean... I'm sure you can imagine, but I, I can. <laughs> but and I had a tradition for a, for a while, probably for five or so years um, running, where I would make, honest to God, ten course Thanksgiving dinners, each course on a different one of my homemade plates, right. each you know, and half the time. Omikase. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. It was really like a kaiseki vibe. I was super. I mean, you can see how influenced I am by, yes. by no, I can't. That Japanese Clearly. aesthetic, I, right? I, I mentioned um, that when yeah. I first looked in the cabinet. Yes. And so I would do these like kaiseki Thanksgivings that took four days to make, you know, and I was just a insufferable asshole to my family for those four days, and nobody could talk to me or come in the kitchen. So I'm um, not the only one. That's no, good to know. No, no, I think it's common. <laughs> But, but at the same time, it's, it's very calming to me. And, and I had chops by that point, so I would make things that I'd never made before for a group of people. And, you know, 99% of the time, they were pretty close to what I had imagined right. because, you know, I knew what I was doing. You've made something similar. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like improvising in music. If you have the foundation, you can switch one thing in for another and you can get there because right. you know how to connect those dots. But, and, and you know... And it was good, and it was beautiful, and people were happy, and everyone ate the shit out of it, and it was really good. They were successful dinners, but then at some point, the the well, blogging changed, the audience changed, and I also just kind of lost interest. And so now, I will very often do exactly what you said, and do really simple family-style stuff, except that I made all the things that go into it. Right. So it all comes from the garden. And that's satisfying to you. <laughs> Very. And, and so I grew everything. I fermented the pickles. I know the farmer that I get the hunk of meat from, whatever it is. And so all the condiments, all the little side things, all the, the pottery, whatever, it all is handmade. And so it's home cooking, but it's, it gets to a very particular place. Right. And that's what people respond to. People do respond to that. And it's great because it, I sort of feel like we've turned the corner in a certain way on you know, stunt cooking, as it were. Yes. And just come back to, like, is this as delicious as it possibly can be, and does it look nice? But it doesn't have to have the high concept It anymore. doesn't have to have the high, the high concept. Um, For me, it's, it's largely variety, too. I mm-hmm. love to eat lots of different things. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, so when you came back, I mean, I assume living, obviously, in Manhattan, which is, you know, just certainly was then and still is probably the greatest food city in this country, you had this very particular classical French training. But I imagine you were 
eating within New York, like a million different. As many experiences as yeah, I could And have. you brought all that home and right. internalized it and figured out how to make it all work. And I think I continued to do that. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, and it <laughs> continues to change. It continues to change. Yeah. So what are your, um, do you have any particular, you know, genres or any particular, I don't know, uh, things that you will tend to default to, flavor profiles? Um, I do. Yeah. I have, um, I make something that I call uh, masalas that are not necessarily Indian, mm-hmm. but they're spice mixtures. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be, sometimes they're Asian, sometimes they're North African. Quite mm-hmm. often they're North African. I tend to gravitate towards uh, Moroccan food, oh, love which it. I think I cook really well. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been there? I have been. Yeah, it's great. I need to go back. I right? do yes, too. I have. <laughs> it's been like 30 years. I'm overdue. Right. But what, interestingly enough, when I was there, um, eating food in restaurants, I was really kind of let down because I had had extraordinary Moroccan food in France. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just not a restaurant culture. Mm-hmm. It's home cooking. It's home cooking. Yeah. It's probably different now. Yeah. It, I'm sure it's different now, which is why I need to go back. But right. most of the restaurants that I went to tended to be fairly touristic mm-hmm. and not quite the caliber that I was anticipating. Mm. I tend to experiment uh, but basing my experimentation on something that I've had or seen before. One of the things that I'm most interested in or have been for the last few years is, speaking of Morocco and Asia, where you went before, is that those represent, you know, if you take Malaysia at one end and Morocco at the other, there is a continuity. It is the Silk Road, the spice route. And so if you take something like lamb, for example, there is no point along a line drawn from Marrakesh, uh, to Kuala Lumpur that doesn't include some kind of beautifully spiced lamb dish. Right. And a lot of those spices are going to be the same. They're going to be similar. The right. ratios will change. Certain local things will pull it very hard in one direction or another. Obviously, you get into coconut and, and you know lime leaves and things at one end. And um, and it'll be served with chickpeas at the other end, right? You know, right. So there's a lot, of, a lot of stops on that route. Right. But I love the way that the fundamental combination of lamb and spices can be pushed and pulled and tweaked in your home kitchen at, in as, a, as you're preparing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. for example, like I made, instead of preserved lemons one year, I made preserved yuzu. Ah. Right? And so that all of a sudden you can do preserved, I do preserved tangerine um, and clementine peels because I hate throwing away citrus peel in the winter. So I just stack those in a jar with salt and make preserved peels. And so then you get into like orangey. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, my what pleasure. What a great idea. <laughs> Yeah. So then, and I made some togarashi, some shichmi togarashi with, with dried, with dried peel. peel. And so you can, you know, you put a little, sprinkle a little togarashi on something that's kind of Moroccan because it has a preserved citrus vibe in it, but then it's got this like spicy Japanese kind of vibe on top. This is, Which fits right in. If it, that's the thing. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like I make pho, but using lamb. Right? Ah, right. Or duck bones. Right. And then you can, so for me, like this, um, this kind of open source malleability in the kitchen is one of the most exciting it's a very exciting places to play right um, and and it makes me feel good um, because when you do have a certain level of skill you do get to like you said on the fly make decisions yeah. with people waiting for me the meal and that you know right. the, you know I thought I, it's really interesting to me that you said you still feel um, I don't know performance anxiety or some measure of uh, some, some insecurity measure. Yeah. the the, the the interesting thing about your citrus, I mean, I, I can I can taste that yeah. <laughs> preserved tangerine, which is something I've never had. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, what I've been doing lately with peels is just leaving them by the fireplace so mm -hmm. that they dry, yeah. and then I pulverize them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and mix them with other spices, and that's pretty. It's phenomenal. wonderful. Slightly smoked, yeah. very citrusy. I like the smoky idea. Yeah, that I haven't done. Um, yeah, I just hate wasting food, and so as much as I'm able to use a byproduct, you know, the, the better I feel about it. I mean, obviously, I compost a lot, but there's a lot of there's a lot of equity in parts of plants, especially that aren't commonly used. It's true, and I like being resourceful. Leaf like to that. root. Yeah, yeah, and I like being resourceful that way because, like as we discussed, neither of us is peasant is a peasant, but you know, we come from people who used to have to really, you know who did worry where their food was coming from. And I'm sure you've had an experience like this where some of the best meals I've ever made were the nights when there was just nothing in the house. Yes. And you've got maybe five things and you just, that's dinner. And so, but sometimes you're like, wow, this is really just... Yeah, that's one of the best experiences for me. It's just phenomenal. And so I think the, having a, that kind of frugal mindset, um, enforcing some level of austerity on your on your cooking practice to me uh, really fosters innovation and and exciting results. It does indeed. There have been times that I've had to purchase items for a shoot to make mm -hmm. a recipe. Yeah, what am I going to do with this stuff? It's right. uh, you know you have to you have to buy a quart and you need two tablespoons. Right. But those are the kinds of things that I learn a tremendous amount from. Yeah. yeah. And so so how now? Moving from, you know, the, the 90s, um, we left off right around the time that the internet started to be a thing. Um, was there, uh, I imagine there have been a whole bunch of, you know, trend waves that have broken and receded in, since then. But um, I'm curious how, um, you know, the new media landscape, has that changed, you know, your your gig, your it, practice it in some way? It kind of not for the better. Yeah, in <laughs> yeah. what way? Uh, I think just because everybody's got a camera now and mm -hmm. everyone goes out to a meal and takes a photograph. I think food photography has taken a lot. Professional, fine professional food photography is just not as, as not taken as seriously as it once was. Because everyone fancies because themselves everyone a food everyone fancies themselves. Yeah. So. And does that mean, I mean, I know some excellent, pro, my very first guest on this was, was my friend Jen. Uh, you know Jennifer May here in Woodstock? I don't. Oh, she's terrific. Um, you know, she, whatever, she's at a place in her career where, um, she she doesn't fear competition. She knows how good she is. There is a there is an element of disposability and people figuring, oh, I can just do it myself. Oh, why would I hire somebody for this? Except that you can tell. You can absolutely tell. But I I've gotten a number of calls from people and uh, asked about my availability and about my rates and have quibbled that I can find someone else. And usually I tell them to find that other person. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like. It's not always true that you get what you pay for, but you definitely don't get what you don't, you don't pay for. Exactly. That's accurate. And and I think that, I mean, I have a very, I, I, and like I said, I wanted to talk to you because I really like the, the looks that you get because they are naturalistic and Thank they, you. Look, they look real. Thank you. That's um, exactly what I strive for. And I've always chafed against, you know, one of the joys to me about, about blogging um, was, you know, doing it entirely for myself on my own terms. Um, it was very much like being a painter, where I was the the you know I was the talent, but I was also the production staff, and I was also quality control. And right. Things go out the door when I say so, and not before. So I could write very long things that took me days and days to work on, or I could fire something off after a bottle of wine at midnight. 
and do both, depending on my mood, because it was my game. It was your game. It was my thing. So, and I loved that about it. And so many talented people were able to find voices and then careers on the basis of having voices and, and being skilled and, and funny and all good things. And, um, but one of the things that I always chafed against, and one of the things when I shot the, the, the book two years ago, or it came out two years ago, but I, I very deliberately wanted it to look as unlike advertising as possible. That was kind of my governing principle, and it always has been, um, because of what we talked about. It's it's. I don't want to sell people some kind of unrealistic expectation. I don't want to sell them something that is not achievable, unless you have a staff of a of twelve right. who work for you. And I think that's that's incredibly important when you're talking about uh, a magazine editorial article that mm-hmm. that includes recipes that people want to make. Yeah. It should represent what they're going to get. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, where would you say the kind of bulk of your of your work is now? Now that you know, print is is struggling so mightily, and is it a lot of online now? Is it, it is a lot of online. I'm still doing a, a fair amount of print, mm-hmm. but I'm worried that that's going to disappear because it the the clients keep decreasing. The number of I clients. Bet. Yeah, yeah, I mean they, they they keep closing. I just they read something. Closing, yeah. yeah, about you know how. It's unrelated to food, really. Um, you know, GQ and Esquire have these new two new editors, right. very different styles, but they're both, you know, clearly they're using different models, but they're both trying to keep these magazines, these legacy magazines alive. Yeah. Please let them. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, everyone misses Gourmet, obviously. Um, you can see what pressure they're under because every time I'm in an airport in July, all those food magazines in the bookstore, they're all like the grilling issue. Right. Every July. Every July. And every, and they get, every November. And they, it's, and they get thinner and thinner, too. It's, well, <laughs> I mean, the ads, they're, they're, it's more and more ads. And and so you can see, and I'm not averse to online content. I'm online every day. I read, I do tons of research, and I've written for online only, and I hope to do more. It's you know, it's right. where most people do most of their reading. It's true. And um, the problem is the is the business side of it. The money's just not there. The money's just not there. The the, the online work that I do, um, people tend to need a lot more done in a, in a in a given day. It's just in order to to make the budget work. So it's very far from your natural so, light photographer who yes. said, "Show up at eleven. We'll work for two hours. The light will be gone, right. and we're done." Right. It's not that anymore. It's not that so anymore. We need we need twenty shots. Yeah. No matter how long it takes. Yeah, yeah, and you don't bill by the hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I imagine there's still a fair amount of um, creative fulfillment and you know joy to be found there, but is it? It's 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 a different the, landscape. It's it's a very different landscape. Uh, what I've been doing the past several years, I've been uh, doing props myself as mm-hmm. well. Do you have a big sure. archive now? Of I do. Things? Have big, yeah. <laughs> some, unfortunately, some things I'll never use again. Yeah. <laughs> keep it just in case. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, doing the props and the food, uh, and occasionally I do shoots at my house, so it's a rental location. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all of that, I'm able to make it work, but I used to make it work just by showing up, bringing my food, bringing my assistant, and leaving at the end of the day. Right. Now you have to do more things. Now I have to do a lot. Are you full-time up here, or is that... No, I'm here about half the time. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. And you're still in the city I'm the rest still of in the city the rest okay. of the time. Yeah. Um, so you work both places? I right? do. Yeah, I imagine I you need to be there. And I have, I have to right. be able to. Do you, um, do you do cookbooks as well? I mean, have you done... I do, I do quite a... I do... I used to do a lot of cookbooks. Lately, um, a number of people that I've worked with in the past have apologized for not having the budgets to hire me. Mm. 
Yeah. There's that. I mean, cookbooks but, as a sector yeah. is still is but, still vibrant. But they are. They They're are. just. Yeah. It, it's it's like Hollywood in that a few runaway bestsellers pay for all the ones that don't right. sell. Right. And so they're very, um, very aware yeah. of how much money they have to play with, unless you're a bold-faced name, in which case they give Precisely. you what you want. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're you're still. And some, in... and some of the bold bold-faced authors uh, actually prefer doing their own food, mm-hmm. which is understandable. Sure. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, so you're you're still adapting. I am. It's adapting. changing fast. It's changing very quickly. Yeah. Do you have? I don't know. You still? It's just you. You're kind of a solo act. I'm pretty much a solo act. So you don't have. Yeah. A, you I have. Well, I have. A, I have a, a couple of assistants who I call upon when I need them. But, but you haven't built a sort of a. It's not a company. Not a company. Yeah. Well, that's nice. It makes you uh, kind of nimble, I guess. Right. How long ago did you get the place up here? Uh, Twenty years ago. Oh wow! So you. Yeah. Actually, 25 years ago. The, I, the place I'm in now, 20 years ago, and mm-hmm. I had a little bachelor's cabin for five years before that. Wow. So I've been in the Hudson Valley for a good part of my life. That's remarkable. I didn't realize. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think we actually kind of met, as it were, on Instagram because um, through Mushroom Forage. Yes, that right? was it, precisely. We noticed that I each found, other, we I, were... And I, I found something that I couldn't identify, and you thought you might... Yeah, yeah. well, you know, you know you're in trouble when you're asking me for you know, definitive IDs, but um, it is not an exaggeration for me to say that I would still be a visual artist if I hadn't moved up here. Removing myself from the city and from that particular treadmill, I still painted for quite a while, but having a garden beginning to write about it and what I was doing, there's no, you know, that all led directly to where I am now. So I'm curious if, um, you've been up here, you know, at least halftime for much, much longer. I'm I'm curious if, uh, you know, what that did just to your, I don't know, your perspective, your lifestyle, the the information that you bring to your work, certainly your cooking. I, uh, I actually moved up here and had a fantastic garden, Mm -hmm. which I just, fell upon. I, I bought the property in, in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, come April when the snow melted, there was a well-tilled garden, victory mm-hmm. garden. Fantastic. Which I loved. Yeah. The problem was that I was on uh, a major highway. Ah, okay. And coming from the city, that first couple of years didn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. But the idea of leaving the city and still hearing traffic uh, yeah, <laughs> got to me. We vetoed a couple of possible houses when we were looking up here because uh, of that. Yeah. So, so fortunately, it was a starter house. I did it on my own. And uh, in the meantime, I developed a relationship with a partner who I've now been with for 25 years. Wow. Uh, we decided to, to build a house mm-hmm. in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unfortunate part about being in the woods is that there's no place to, to garden. I mean, I have a few plants. I have herbs on tomatoes yeah. on my deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you have to, you have to but, take trees if you want to garden. Right. So I, I'm kind of fine, which is why I started looking for mushrooms. Uh-huh. That's what I've got. Right. Yes. <laughs> plenty of those, especially last year. Plenty, yeah. plenty, last year was just incredible. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah. But just the fact that I can walk outside and uh, I, can, I can be cooking in the kitchen and just walk outside and be surrounded by nature just mm-hmm. makes me so happy yeah it really brings yeah. me joy yeah me too and like daily it's yeah. always there and never it can be oh. pissing rain it can be glorious doesn't today. Matter. it doesn't matter yeah. it's just it's always there for you the smell yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's kind of magical it's nice to hear i mean i a lot of people um 
undergo career changes when they come up. And so I'm really, uh, I like the fact that you were able to keep yours and uh, and just bring more information well, to so it. Far, yeah. So far. So <laughs> far. Well, I mean. But I, no, when I, when I can sort of, if I do a project, if I'm the food stylist, the prop stylist, and providing the location, I sort of, by default, am the art director. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't tell my clients that. Right. But... <laughs> But uh, well, I assume though, in these days of leaner budgets, that they prefer someone like you who can wear yes, three or four hats. They do. They do. It's one-stop yeah. shopping. It's one-stop shopping, right? They just need a photographer, and, and, and they're and good. I've done it long enough that if I know what their requirements are, I can usually tell them. I can estimate pretty well mm-hmm. what the job will entail. And so, if you're if you're renting your house here to people who are living there, obviously, you just go down to the city. And if you're renting it for a shoot, do you have to do you have to keep your? Oh no, I don't rent it for. For a living, just for shoots. Oh, it's just for shoots. Yeah. Okay. And actually, pretty much just for shoots that I'm involved in. Okay. Yeah, I right. had rented it out early on to uh, to, to crews, mm-hmm. and there's so many people that I don't really yeah. want that at my living space. Sure. But if I'm involved in the shoot, right? Especially if I'm doing everything, it's it's fine. Do you? Uh, so you, I imagine you have to keep your house extremely clean. Do you have to? Uh, well, I have to get it extremely you clean. Get, right. You have some notice. <laughs> Did it change the way you sort of decorate or furnish? Not at all. No, Not just least. it's your place. Yeah, it's my place. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you have very good taste. Well, I, mean, I saw some pictures online. It looks really nice. Okay. Yeah. That's my taste. Do you have a? Do you? I forget. Do you have um, a view out over the reservoir? Or I something? do. Well, not over the reservoir. I have a view of the Catskills, oh, which nice. I love waking up to. It just really. That's makes me the happy. thing. The two things that we don't have in this house are a view, and any kind of water. Well, I, maybe we should think about uh, trading my view for your garden. But <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I mean, look. It, it, it's all you need is a chainsaw and a, some kind of little you know excavator, and you can clear the. It's that's, not hard to clear. That's land. true. That's true. Um, the hard thing here, honestly, is the fact that the topsoil is just wretched. It's rocks and clay. Right. So you need a lot of compost. I have raised beds for a reason. I mean, they're easier to garden, um, and it's easier to keep the paths clear when you have raised beds. But if the, the topsoil, Catskills topsoil is just it's, no, it's awful. It's, it's wretched. It's, I've, I've got bags of topsoil under my deck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Whenever I plant one plant, I've got it at topsoil. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming, man. It's really well, been a pleasure. Thank you. It's yeah. great pleasure to talk to you. Roscoe Betzel. You can find him at roscoebetzel.com or scobetzel on Instagram. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, music by my son Milo Barrett, smilobee.com. And remember, the most beautifully plated and presented plate of food you've ever eaten still ended up in the toilet.